Do you spend hours in your head thinking about something that happened, could have happened, or might happen? Do you ask others what to do so you don't make a mistake? Welcome to the Playing It Safe podcast. I am Dr. Z, your host. I am a clinical psychologist, an author, and a person that is super passionate about sharing with you science-based skills to overcome any type of fear-based struggles. Who doesn't experience fear? Who doesn't play it safe? In this show, we will discuss how fear-based reactions happen in day-to-day life, how playing it safe behaviors look like, sound like, and feel like, how you can put into action solid tips from behavioral science to get unstuck from worries, fears, obsessions, and anxieties, and how you can start doing what works, what matters, and what you care about. Behavioral science doesn't have to be boring. Thanks for listening, and let's get started. Hi, everybody. This is Patricia Esperanza Zurita Oña, Dr. Z. And I am back, as usual, with another episode of the podcast Playing It Safe. This is a special episode because this conversation meant a lot to me. And I hope it means a lot to you as well. I hope you find it useful. It's a special episode because quite often we don't know the behind the scenes of people who are exposed to extreme and unusual circumstances as part of their day-to-day life. One of the things I have been trying to do in the podcast is to normalize and appreciate fear-based reactions and anxiety-based reactions as part of our day-to-day life. Quite often, if not all the time, most people think that anxiety or fear are reactions exclusive for people that go to therapy. But that's not true. If you think about it, and if you pay close attention to your day-to-day life, if you pay close attention to how you move from one activity onto another activity in your day, it's quite likely that you are experiencing some form of anticipatory anxiety about something that is going to happen in the future or could happen in the future. It's also possible that you start ruminating in your head about mistakes that you did in the past. It's also possible that you start doubting and trying to list in your mind all what you know about a particular situation to make the best decision you can make. All those are forms of anxiety and fear-based reactions. Now, there are times in which we are exposed to extreme and unusual circumstances. But for some people, being exposed to these extreme and unusual circumstances, it's part of their career. So today, I am sharing with you an interview with Lance Morrison, a former police captain who, for 28 years, was exposed to these unusual and extreme situations as part of his career and as part of his commitment to serve his community. In this conversation, you will hear me asking Lance the specifics of how he handled those unusual situations, how he handled fear when someone is pointing at you with a gun, when someone is threatening directly your life. And as the conversation unfolds, 
you will hear how Lance tried different things to manage all these uncomfortable experiences he was exposed to almost on a daily basis as part of his career. Um, I personally was very, very touched and moved to hear how Lance found a particular mindset that allowed him to perform at his best and with a lot of respect in his role as captain and as a police officer. I finished my conversation with Lance with a lot of appreciation because all of us, you, Lance, myself included, we are doing our best to navigate these fear-based reactions without losing ourselves. And I think the conversation with Lance will show you how, even in the midst of very unusual situations, he chose to do what matters, he chose to do what was important to him without getting lost in the complexity of the situation in which his life was threatened. Before we jump onto the episode, I would like to invite you to consider for a moment how will it be for you if your career is being exposed to very extreme situations in which your life is threatened? What will you feel? How will you handle those moments? Thank you so much for listening to this episode. And very important reminder for all of you. If you haven't subscribed to the newsletter, Playing It Safe, please go to my website, www.thisisdrz.com. Again, the website is www.thisisdrz.com because every Wednesday I am sharing skills based on acceptance and commitment training, effective science, and organizational psychology so you can get better and better at handling all those ineffective planet safe moves that come with fear and anxiety and stress. On that note, let's go on to the episode and see you next week. Have a lovely week. So one of the first things I dealt with as a young officer was this idea of, well, there's the good and the bad. We're protecting the good from the bad. And you, you cut this really fine line that you were dealing with, say, good and evil. And that's messy. That's no way to live. That's no way to think. I, I literally had to go through a process to understand that there are so many different shades, so many different circumstances, so many potentialities for people. And no, I'm not there to, to hold the one up against the other. That was something you definitely have to grow through as an officer. Can I ask a little bit more about that process that you went through? Given the different roles that you had had in your career, you have been exposed to different dangerous situations in which your life was under threat. So how did you manage to navigate to those moments and not get consumed by these views of right or wrong, good or bad? Mainly, mainly from talking to everyday people, because it shifted my whole my whole perception um, uh, you know, we, we were the heroes. Oh, that'd be very comfortable to believe that. Well, mm-hmm. we're the heroes. But actually, when you meet people who are doing something far different than you, let's say someone owns a, a small store, mm-hmm. they, put, 
they've they've gone to a bank, they've put their house up against it, they've mortgaged everything on this idea that they can sell enough of something to pay the rent for their family to give them food. Like I was getting paid by taxpayers. Mm -hmm. These are people to me are true heroes because they're putting their livelihood on their ingenuity, on their on their ability to to make more than they're paying out. And I started to to understand that. well, the the narrative again of good versus evil, or or what my job represented, uh, the best of the best, or something. No, no, the best of the best are driving around, and if you just sit and talk with them, you'll realize they'll humble you very quickly. <laughs> what they're accomplishing every day. Wow, it's very endearing to hear you saying that because sometimes we live in our own bubbles and we forget to look at the person in front of us or how others are living. Do you feel comfortable sharing one of those times in which your life was in danger and how you navigated that moment? Ah, well, you know, I, I've been in shooting situations, for instance, um, more than one. Um, and, but I would have to say as uh, that's pretty visceral, but Mm -hmm. uh, probably not the things that shook me the most, you know, going to a crib death and seeing that, probably did far more damage because it was harder to understand. Um, You saw so many people hurting. It hurt you. But abject fear uh, showing up and shots are being fired and you're driving into that situation where the other people are leaving. Um, mm, I think most people think that, that, that somehow uh, that makes an officer powerful. (laughs) We're scared. (laughs) Of course, we're scared. We are empowered to go and handle it, but we don't have any power. It does, you know, we don't have any special gifts. We're just mortals going into a dangerous situation. So I, I definitely dealt with fear, and I don't mind telling you there were times, um, say that I was being shot at, or somebody we go to the ground, and I don't know what's going to happen now. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a fear, but you have training, so you don't really dwell on that. Um, it's, it's more watching what other people go through, losing their children, um, a car accident that happens out of nowhere. And that really shows you more the, just how life can turn so quickly mm-hmm. that, that a loss can come. You, you see it a lot more with other people than you see it with yourself because a situation comes, someone has a gun, someone has a knife. It's over in five minutes or 10 minutes. The rest of your day is spent watching other people lose, truly lose. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that you have been trained to handle those situations, like a shooting situation. What was the training in how to handle stress or these visceral reactions that may pop up in those high-stakes situations? Well, that's, that's a very interesting question because there isn't much training that goes along with handling the stress. Uh, there's, there's training with how to, how to see a threat and respond to it and and respond to it in a way that might keep you alive. But afterward, it's kind of interesting really that, that an officer knows if I'm involved in a shooting, then Mm -hmm. I'm going to go and see a mental health person because I have to, they're going to make me go, right? It's it's a, it's a punishment or something. Um, and so, so if you're in a shooting, you're going to go and see a mental health professional. But mm-hmm. if you've gone to a hundred crib deaths, you're yeah. not going to go, they're not sending you. No one asks you, are you okay? What are you carrying around? And, and even worse than that, uh, 
because I want to be very open and transparent with you. Um, I've been to several cases where, where I've give, given so much empathy to someone, say the loss. I can think of three. Someone lost a young baby and they're crying and it was a crib death. And then I found out the next day, no, they had actually killed them. Oh. So, so I invested all of my empathy <laughs> to people literally crying with them. And then the next day found out, no, they actually beat that baby to death. Um, that, that kind of thing can really stay with, with any of us, certainly for an officer, um, that could really make you cynical. Mm-hmm. It could make you not trust anyone. Um, I, I, I would, I just could never allow that to happen. I sought out ways to, to see the best in humanity. Otherwise, <laughs> I, I don't know what I would do. Mm-hmm. Drink or drink every day. <laughs> Which is sometimes what people do, right? right? When you have this more trauma-based response, people may go into all types of things. If I can ask a little bit more, you mentioned that you did the best you could to not go there and to handle that in different ways. Which other ways did you find to handle those post-event reactions? Probably trying to compartmentalize. Can't deal with all this right now, uh, th- but I, I found out very quickly, mm, you better compartmentalize with a timer. <laughs> so okay. I'll think about this, but I'll think about it tonight. Oh. I, have to, I have to get through the rest of my shift. I can't be safe. I can't be effective. When I get off work, I'm going to go for a run mm-hmm. and I'm going to think about it. So I used to put a timer on my compartmentalizing, literally a mental timer. I will deal with this tonight when I run. Mm-hmm. Um, I ran long distance for many years, so I did a lot of thinking and my best thinking. Uh, even when I became a captain, my mm-hmm. officers knew this and they would come and say, I know you're busy, Lance. Could you run on this? And they would tell me their issue. <laughs> so I, I, I literally found that running was a great time to, and when you promised yourself that you would do it, mm-hmm. you could effectively not be bogged down by mm-hmm. a lot of issues. So that's one thing I learned to do. And it was, it, it helped me a lot. That's Not awesome. to avoid it, but to put it, uh, set aside a time, like a, a mental calendar. Yeah, no, it's very powerful. When I am working with clients dealing with a lot of worries with what if this goes wrong? What if people don't like me? What if I get sick? What if I get COVID? One of the skills that we teach them is to schedule a worry time. And it's exactly similar to what you have been doing. People say, okay, today I'm going to focus on this interview. I'm going to focus on my kids. And then from seven to eight, I am going to write down all my worries one by one. And I'm going to put all of them on the paper. So it's a little bit what you have been doing. Interesting. You also mentioned having these mental timers to actually focus on that particular issue. And that you promise to yourself that you won't deal with that during the day, but you will have this time to focus on that particular issue. What other ways did you find helpful to manage all the things that you have to face day by day? Um, I realized that that these issues, when they came, say uh, uh, a shooting situation or a terrible situation, uh, somebody was badly hurt or something. um, I, I saw those as kind of a, some of those were almost like fate. There's an intersection, the moment and this experience. They meet and it happens and it's unavoidable. So 
uh, I started trying to schedule again, my own intersections of the moment and the experience Mm -hmm. running, (laughs) running was wonderful for me. Um, It put me in that place where I was doing something positive, Mm -hmm. writing, writing music, uh, writing music for me. I started publishing music. Um, It was just a way to not have my life overburdened. I, I, I imagine if you just did nothing, but what you do for a living every day and didn't take breaks, you would get bogged down with everybody's burdens. Absolutely. So I, I found scuba diving, running, not just having police officer friends, especially <laughs> like get a different diet of people that you, you get to speak with. Um, I find that to be, even to, to this day, I'm, I'm learning Chinese. I speak a lot of online to people in China. And by the way, I, I, that also removes a certain fear and anxiety of just everyday life when you're walking around and you don't, you don't know people. Well, now you can talk to people, you can communicate with people. So I guess trying, I, 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 I the most uncomfortable thing I did in what you're, what you're asking me is yeah. I started introducing myself into to conversations with people. Oh, wow. Uh, because I realized even though it's uncomfortable, I came away with more than I would have uh, if I would have just laid back. Mm-hmm. So I, I am, even though I'm more shy than people would think, wherever I go these days, I, I inject myself in small conversations that usually turn into larger ones. And I learn enough about those people to be impressed almost all the time and walk away feeling better about humanity. There are some great stories out there. There's some great people doing great things. And if I don't seek them out, then I can sit around and say, oh, we're all tribal and we're all hating on each other. And I could believe that easily. I see. Well, you know, you seem to be very open, open to experiences, open to learning, open to people. Was it always like that? Or did you start developing much more openness because of the work you were doing? Yeah, I think probably the most closed off I ever was was when I first started because I felt I had arrived. I was a police officer and, like I said, defending good against evil. And as far as having a wide mm, appetite, uh, being super open, no, I had a lot to learn. Mm-hmm. had a lot to learn some of those came in the forms of reality slaps right i mean again you could really believe that humanity is terrible if you just looked at it through the eyes of good and evil you would just believe that we're doomed um it's only by literally seeking out people meeting as many people as you can embracing stories um that you learn that you can realize uh, no we're most of humanity is is wonderful mm-hmm. we're nagged by a certain i guess percentage if there is such a thing that's going to always challenge us we're wired to be compassionate we're wired to be kind we're wired to connect with each other and also we have the capacity to do terrible things but if i can ask a little bit more I sometimes wonder when I'm watching the news and I hear all types of bad things that people are doing that are scary, that are upsetting. Sometimes we may lose hope 
We may say, what's happening? How is it possible? How did this person could do that? On my case, I try to minimize how much of that type of information I expose myself to. I may watch the news 30 minutes a day. That's as much as I can handle it in a way that doesn't consume me and I don't become this cranky Patricia. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not a fun person when I'm cranky. (laughs) But in the work you're doing, because of the nature of being a police officer, uh, you are basically exposed maybe 24 hours, 7, to different types of actions that are hard, robberies, assaults, violence. Uh, and in those moments, you don't know who the person is, is in front of you, who they are, where, where they are coming from, whether they're made of. How did you learn to navigate that? Uh, I think because I evolved from the idea of I'd, I'd meet someone and say a, a traffic stop. You might make 20 traffic stops in one shift. Um, and you're supposed to, on one level, do a threat assessment. Mm-hmm. Is this person sober? Are they on methamphetamine? Are they using heroin? Are they using uh, too much alcohol? Uh, or do they have a weapon? Do they, do they pose any kind of threat? But if that's all you do, and that's what a new officer does more than anything, um, that will consume you. Mm-hmm. But when you realize that you can use your own power of influence with people mm-hmm. and you can get to read them much quicker and get to a, a situation where where even if they were thinking of, of say, running or fighting, they're not going to. Um, e- even in arresting people, I, I found that rather than say you're under arrest, which to some people could mean the fight will now begin. <laughs> Instead of that, you know what? I'm gonna, we're going to go down to the station. We're going to get on the phone and see if maybe someone can pick you up. We're going to look at some options. I'm going to put these cuffs on you just to protect myself. And all of a sudden, they're in my car. And because I bothered to, I guess, use a little bit of, of humaneness and tact mm-hmm. and spare myself what would have been coming. Mm-hmm. Because truly to tell somebody you're under arrest and move at them with a pair of handcuffs is a lot different than taking a moment to explain that maybe their life isn't really going to go downhill into a bottomless pit. We'll get through this. Mm-hmm. So you can, when you realize that if you put out the effort, you can literally prevent a lot of this from going bad for your own safety, then your, your safety and anxiety level, um, is much better itself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And where did you learn to put that effort, to put this personal touch of yours? Because you are right. We often hear about situations in which a police officers will say exactly those words. You are under arrest and then I have to do this. But you are describing that you did make the effort to treat people in a different way. Well, I, th- I think you you just see that it's like it's like in any relationship with any person. If you put in the time, so I guess you have to see them as people. Maybe that's the issue, right? You have to see them as people, not just that crook you're arresting. So yeah, treat them like a human being. Realize that being arrested is a very it could be a really traumatic event in their life. For some, especially, they may think they're going back to prison. Right. So they may want to assault you. I, I mean, I one of the last arrests that I made was someone that literally reached into his pants and started pulling out a gun. And he was going to shoot me uh, because he was going to go to prison, not because 
I caught him what he was doing, but he knew he was going to prison. So that impulsive behavior um, is what can cost an officer their lives. Mm -hmm. I guess to best answer your question, retaining your humanity is going to greatly increase the odds that you're going to be safer when you deal with people. How did you manage in those moments the fear, the fear of being attacked, the fear of losing your life? And you still choose to retain that sense of humanity. Is that any thought that you caught yourself? Did you do some deep breathing? Just curious, how was in that moment? I, I, I think it's realizing that as long as I am being effective in what I'm saying, I have an advantage and, and I'll work through this. I have a very positive outlook. Mm-hmm. There are those moments when you can feel the shift. And I've experienced this a number of times in 42 years of police work. So you feel a shift where you have lost your ability to influence someone. That is when someone is going to shoot. That's when someone is going to attack you or attack someone else when you've lost the ability to influence them. And you can literally feel it. Mm -hmm. I'm not running this show anymore. It's they're going to do something. I cannot stop them. That's a scary, that's a scary place for an officer. When you realize I am not influencing this situation anymore. Maybe someone has chosen, I, I don't want to live. I just want to make you shoot me. You can feel that shift. Mm-hmm. That's the loneliest feeling an officer has is when they know I'm not impacting the situation that I'm in right now. Mm-hmm. As long as you can, that helps your stress level for sure. Thank you for sharing all this with me. Oh. Uh, with people listening to us, it's powerful and very important because your mindset is, let's work through this. Yeah. So that makes a huge difference. Now, if I can ask, um, you mentioned moments ago, the last arrest that you had to perform, when you saw this person putting his hand into his pocket, he knew he was going to jail. What happened afterwards? If I were next to you, what would I see happening? What happened under your skin? How did you handle that internally? Okay. Well, you can imagine adrenaline, Mm. like jumping off a building with a bungee cord. Okay. Adrenaline, um, grabbing his hand. I remember pulling my gun out and putting it behind his head and the clerk, cause he was at the, he was at, uh, at a store, uh, counter. The clerk looked at me like, what are you doing? Mm -hmm. And then I, had my hand on this guy's gun. I pulled it out. He let go of it. Now the clerk went, Oh, Oh my gosh. Right. Amazingly, I'll be just straightforward and transparent with you. (laughs) Once I got him handcuffed, I wanted to talk to him about it. Mm -hmm. And he told me, yes, I was going to shoot you, but now I'm glad you got the gun. I'm going to prison. I'm glad I didn't shoot you. You seem like a nice guy. I'm glad I didn't. But at that moment I was going to. And we had a conversation for about 20 minutes, his life in prison, most of his life in prison. And he had that, just that, that adrenaline, same as I was having, I'm not going back to prison mm-hmm. and I'll shoot this guy to do it. Um, ironically, as we're talking, I'm thinking, you know, there's some things about you I like, <laughs> you know, and I'm, I'm sorry for the, the rough upbringing. I can tell you, you've had it rough. I had a wonderful father. You didn't. 
Mm-hmm. You know, someone who the first time he ever used heroin was with his father. So I, I have the ability, I guess, the flexibility to say, yeah, you weren't very lucky. I was mm-hmm. um, sure glad you didn't shoot me, by the way. But he, he, he didn't hesitate to tell me, A, I was going to and B, I'm glad I didn't. And I know people have this in them, you know, for for one year out of the time I was an officer, I had to work in a jail. Mm-hmm. You'd be amazed. You talk to people every day. Uh, they might have some some skills that they show you, or or some qualities that you would say are positive. And then you, you look up their charges, and they murdered three people. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, it's counterintuitive, but there's some very there's some people with some very endearing qualities sitting in state prison who murdered people, and you can't deny that it's it's some of them can be manipulative but uh, so can we to keep them from doing bad things i think sometimes it's very complex to put all the pieces of who we are a person with so many qualities has also the capacity to commit murders assaults and robberies and when you meet them how do we reconcile all those pieces of who they are that's very complex and it's a very pro- complex it's a complex process but also requires a lot of as you're saying like openness to really look at the person in front of us for who they are with all these layers if i can step back a little bit in preparation for our conversation i was trying to learn more about your resume and your vita and then i bumped into this article well there are a couple of them online And in one of them, they're mentioning how at some point in your career, I think it was in 1989, you have to move out of network. Members of a drug ring had learned where you live and they had an order for you to be killed. And in the interview, you have this sentence, two detectives came to my door and told me I had to leave. So we sold the house and we moved. Yes. A little bit about that. What was the context? How did it happen? Well, Doctor Zarita, I think you're gonna you're gonna find this a little remarkable. So, so <laughs> I, I, I had worked I had worked in a drug task force. It was a regional multi city drug task force, and we we worked major uh, dealers. Um, and so there were people who lost a lot of money or went to jail for a long period of time. And I was in, I was involved as an undercover officer. And then I ran that unit for a while uh, over a couple of years. Um, and someone who was angry, put a contract out on my life mm-hmm. and they had a plan. They literally had already paid for people to come up to kill me. Well, that was pretty shocking. And I did have to move and it uprooted my life and cost me a lot of money. Because at that time, uh, a lot of houses were underwater due to an economic downturn. So I actually lost money when I sold my house. But I have to tell you, the only reason that anyone found out about this contract was that someone that I arrested for car theft told a detective. He heard about it. And he wanted to let him know because I had arrested him and I treat and I was nice to him. He said, that guy, I, he said, he arrested me for car theft and he let my wife come to the station and bring the, bring my baby so I could say goodbye. And I had done that. You know, I knew he was going away. It was after the arrest we're talking and 
he asked me, you know, what are the chances? Well, the chances are fine. I'll make that happen. Um, he never forgot that. That's the guy that's, that probably saved my life. So you think about taking the time to treat people right. Um, you don't do it for cynical reasons like, well, maybe they'll save your life. But in this case, that's how it played out. So that's the whole story on that. That's incredible. I'm really touched by it. I just cannot imagine how it's to have your life under threat and to have a person that never forgot. Not only never forgot, but that person, if found out, Mm -hmm. would be killed. I mean, that person risked their life to do something for someone that he felt did a kindness above and beyond, maybe. And um, you can only learn from that. There's so much possible with human interaction, right? Yeah, there's a lot to learn from that. And can I ask a little bit? When you have to move your family, how do you navigate to that with them? So that's that's another interesting thing because very few times did my job touch my family in a negative way. My kids, I would take them with me when we did fundraisers and when we would do things in the community. Uh, I would try and take my kids to expose them to that. But this was one of the few times where I had to say, you're going to stay here for, you know, we're going to move. And, and this is why, um, that hurts as an, that, that's one of the things in this job. I, I remember the first time I was involved in a shooting and I knew they'd be, they'd be hearing about it at school because it's, it's in the paper and the kids are going to say your dad shot somebody. Mm-hmm. I, I broke down crying when I thought about that. I was sitting in a room as you often do after a situation like that, waiting to talk to all the different people. And my thought wasn't what had happened to me. My thought was, I'm going to have to tell my kids. Mm -hmm. And it just stabbed my heart that I was going to interrupt their innocence with my job. I'm getting teary-eyed right now because it just, it was the idea that you're going to bring this to your kids. And the same thing with this, Um, you're going to move it was an urgent situation and we had no choice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you're in a different place in life today mm-hmm. and you're teaching some of these young officers. I think you're teaching in college. Yes, yes. How do you teach all what you have learned in these 42 years of your career? How do you teach to approach one of these hybrid situations with a mindset of we are going to go through this? I am going to look at that person in front of me as a whole human being. And I will try to navigate through this, even though I do not know how it's going to unfold. And I'm going to treat them with a lot of respect, given all of the position of the police officers and tiles on a single day and every hour. Um, so for me, for instance, um, I, don't, I, I like to show them. Mm-hmm. So I remember one day, uh, rather than show them how an officer can get caught up in a crowd mentality or that people can get caught up in a crowd mentality, say at a, at a demonstration, I, I had a large class of 90 students and I, I made like 12 of them police officers and I made the rest of them protesters. And I, I let them move against each other, right? The front lines and don't let these people get past you. And uh, you guys, you, you, you be passionate. And all of a sudden... <laughs> It did turn into a riot. 
And I, I was asking some of the officer role players later, like, why are you shoving them? Well, they got too close. Well, okay, let's talk about that. I mean, that was one day where I think everybody learned a lot because the people who were doing the protesting got very animated and very physical. And the officers, role players, were defending their turf almost at the point of their own personal pride. So there was a lot. Yeah. So I like to use that kind of actual demonstration. How do they respond to it? Oh, they very well. Very well. Yeah. That's one of the most gratifying things to see um, is just that none of this is easy. It's all complex. And like you said, there's, there are so many layers to, to every little thing. Um, if I could tell you about layers for a second, I'd love to hear about it. Yeah. So, so one of the things that I think I'm the most proud of, and this is back when I was a sergeant, I started something called aftercare and people looked at me like I had nine heads, like, what are you <laughs> talking about? And when we leave a serious incident where someone's going to jail or a lot of people are going to jail, we're going to leave two officers behind and they're going to talk to the family. That's it. They're going to stay here. Their job is literally to tell and answer questions, take the heat, let people vent let them know the phone number to the jail, let them know bail bondsmen, how that works. Before we leave, we left with their loved ones. Now we're going to leave them with some information. They thought I was crazy, but the, the number of complaints, actual complaints were zero because wow. half of the time people complain, they're complaining out of their fear. Where's my kid? What's bail? How do I get it? What jail is he going to? All these questions. And out of fear come anger, complaints, and we, we saw that all of that just disappeared when we actually left. I called it aftercare. We're going to do aftercare. So you're going to stay here, and, and we'll designate two people and just be a firewall and provide information and by, let people cool down. And <laughs> I, I guess it's just one of those things you look back and you say, you know, there has to be some tactics along with humanity, right? Look at the way things normally work and like, can we do it better than that? Why not? That's beautiful that you implemented that and I can see how impactful it was. What led you to come through that plan? What led you to come with that idea of aftercare? I think just realizing that most people call you and they're asking the same questions. The officer wouldn't even tell me where my, what, what jail is he going to? Is he going to county jail? Is he going to city jail? How do you do bail? Um, why was he around? You know, it's, it's almost as if officers felt, I'm here to do this, and mm -hmm. you're screaming at me, so I don't want to deal with you. Well, but they are part of it. They are part of it. And if you don't want to treat them like they're part of it, they'll become part of it later when they make a citizen's complaint, and you get to answer to their complaint. So do you want them to be part of it in a positive way or in a negative way? <laughs> Sounds like it was a beautiful initiative. Are they still doing that? They actually are. So that makes me happy. It stood the test of time. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. It's one of your legacies. That's beautiful. A little bit. little one. <laughs> Let me ask you a little bit more. I learned that how you have been running, writing music, just using that time to compartmentalize and to just navigate through any issues you have through so it doesn't linger through your day. But what about other times when that was hard? Was there any time in which after having that 
wonderful run, your mind was still maybe thinking and thinking about a person or a situation that happened. One of the things that we have seen in research is that the many times police officers go through a lot of trauma and we don't talk too much about it. And there is the trauma of the event, but there is also the trauma afterwards of the traumatic event and things that are usually not discussed. And I'm wondering how was that for you if you had any internal experience like that, even though you were doing the same, you're using all your coping skills, like running, writing music, trying to do something soothing, hanging out with people who are not police officers, but the mind still has, is replaying over and over an event, something that happened a week before or a month ago. How did you navigate to that when it was hard to compartmentalize? Um, I think you have to hold yourself accountable intellectually and emotionally to Mm -hmm. do better. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I think if I can't get through something, that first thing I do is challenge myself. What's what's in your way here? Let's break it down. I've always been that way. I I like to look deeply into things and 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 see what it really is. Um, And then I think also uh, if you're blessed with a couple of good friends. I am not, I am not embarrassed to, well, I'm not embarrassed to, to cry, tell my friends I love them, none of that. I'm not afraid to tell someone I, I think I need to talk to somebody. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I will tell you this, a lot of police officers, that's a huge stigma. They don't, they think that they should ha- be able to handle everything. We can look tough on the outside, but it doesn't mean that we have all the skills to handle all the noise. So true. Mm-hmm. So true. One last question, if it's okay. Of course. If you were to have a cup of coffee or tea or a beer or a scotch with any person you want today, who would that be and why? Okay, now I'm, I'm not being smart. I'm being honest. Okay, I would have it with you because you're very interesting, very oh. compelling, and uh, I feel like this conversation could go on for hours. So I'll, I'll, I'll say, yeah. <laughs> that is very kind of you. I feel the same. As I was talking, I can totally see myself having a coffee with you for hours and just chatting about all your life experiences because they're fascinating. Oh, well, thank you. Um, I've enjoyed this conversation immensely. I, I can see why people can get a lot out of talking with you. You're very kind. You're very kind. I think um, we all do our part to do what we can for others when they are struggling, when they are suffering, and you have been doing that all your life in a different role. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, I will very much appreciate it if you will subscribe and share this podcast with your friends. And if you're feeling extra generous, I welcome a review on Apple Podcasts. Show notes of this episode are in the website playingitsafe.com. Make sure to subscribe to my newsletter so you can receive more tips to stop all types of unworkable, playing it safe actions. See you soon!